Hello and welcome to Your Employment Matters. I'm Beverly Williams and I'm here to help you navigate your career. This is for anyone who's searching for their dream job or promotion, or perhaps you're just looking to hang on to the job you have. Today's work environments are multi-generational, multi-religious, multinational, multiracial, and multi-gender and multi-gender identity. Add market disruptors like Amazon and Lyft, along with the addition of AI, and it's easy to see why finding and keeping a job is such a challenge. Employment success and even employment survival depend on your ability to adapt. That's why my goal for this 30-minute podcast is to first advocate embracing change and differences, and second, to encourage you to proactively assume responsibility for your career. Get your work week off to a good start by listening to Your Employment Matters every Monday. Find out how to own your career and get the best practices for making your employment matter. I recently connected with an individual, someone who has a business in the hospitality industry. Now, he's not a chef and he's not a restaurateur. He leads New York's premier food distributor, Woolco Foods, which for over 30 years has been a leading broadline provider for restaurants, hotels, bakeries, caterers, and institutions in the New York, New Jersey area. I'm going to leave it to my guest, Stephen Toberoff, to share his employment journey and to tell us why he does what he does and how he got involved in doing it. And I'll jump in if I have a question that Stephen doesn't ask, but the exchange will be mostly on him because he has a wealth of information. And I'm curious. I watch the Food Network religiously. I love hearing about chefs and restaurants and making recommendations to people I care about. So thank you for what you do in support of the industry I care a great deal about. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Beverly. Thank you very much. And thank you for that introduction. So I guess I'll go, I'll start from the beginning and, and sort of give you the journey as to how I, I became CEO and co-owner of Wolco. So I went to the University of Chicago and my major in college was uh, literature. I had an interest at that point in creative writing. I had an interest in academia and that's what I pursued in college. After college, I had a number of different jobs. I was a script reader for New Line Cinema and uh, had a few other jobs in the creative industry, but found that it wasn't really the passion that I thought that it was. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And my father owned 50% of a company called Woolco Foods um, at the time. The other 50% was owned by another individual who was not related. And I worked there for a few years in various different capacities and found that I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the collaborative aspects of business. I enjoyed the daily problem solving. I enjoyed the fast pace. And I I even enjoyed the fact that there was an artistic element to business as well, both from being in the food service and just in general. And after working there for a few years, my father felt 
and I agreed with him that I would benefit from an advanced degree in something that was business or quasi-business related. And I decided to go to law school, which I enjoyed immensely. I went to law school, and unfortunately and surprisingly, in my second year of law school, my father passed away. And thank you. Yet I was 28 at the time. And so at that point, I had a decision to make because I had a job lined up with a law firm called Cadwallader, Wickersham and Taft, which was a corporate law firm in New York. And I enjoyed the law. But I also had a great, as I had said before, I really enjoyed business. And I got along very well with the other individual that was the co-owner of Woolco. And he was, he and I had a conversation and he asked if I would be willing to take the stock as opposed to a buyout, which um, I had the option to take as well. And I gave it some thought and I said, look, I'm going to finish law school. I'm going to take the bar exam. I want to finish what I started, but I will absolutely come in and, um, and come to Wilco. And I did. And that was in 1999. I finished law school and, and took the bar and all of that. I was working at Wilco simultaneously. And that's when I began my journey at Wolco. And at that point in time, we were located in the Meatpacking District in New York City on Gansevoort Street. And it was, um, thank God, it was a great decision because I, I can honestly say that I have really loved and enjoyed and benefited from in a multitude of ways being in this business. So as I say, we were in the Meatpacking District. And then in 2004, Due to the expansion of our business, we wound up moving to Jersey City, one mile outside of the Holland Tunnel, to a a beautiful facility with lots of parking, and we were able to outfit the building exactly as we needed it. The building in, in Manhattan was on three floors, and there was no parking, and it brought with it tons of challenges. But we moved here in 2004, and it's been a it was a phenomenal move, and um, have just enjoyed it so much because. As I stated earlier, Beverly, when you're in business, particularly one that's as collaborative as the food service business, it gives you an opportunity to work with other people. It gives you an opportunity to be creative, to problem solve, and to truly have a positive impact on the community, both within Woolco and in the broader community at large. And so we sell to all of the aforementioned institutions and and establishments that you listed in the introduction in New York City the suburbs of New York, and the entire state of New Jersey. I knew that we had a connection when I listened to your podcast, The Profitable Table, which is on the wall behind you, a a sign. Your mission is to serve, to serve the community and the industry that you work in. And you've helped them through the pandemic. And it was a challenge particularly for the hospitality industry, because no one was going, very few people were going to restaurants. People were staying home. You know, we were quarantined, so to speak, in many instances. So I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the hospitality industry was one of the hardest hit businesses, line of businesses that the pandemic adversely impacted. So you have, you provided a service for them. How can you do, how can you improve your situation given this setback? Well, you're absolutely correct, Beverly. I mean, um, 
I've been through a number of different challenges, macro challenges in my time as CEO in uh, 9-11 oh. and 2008 and the, um, the Superstorm Sandy, but I've never been through anything that was quite like 2020. In one week, our revenue dropped 87%. And oh it was a, it was an incredible challenge. And I was very blessed to have such a phenomenal group of people in the management of this company, Wilco, my management team, and really everybody here was phenomenal and so committed. And the culture we have here at Wilco is really one that's always been centered around problem solving and looking for solutions. And I really relied on my management team, and they did an absolutely phenomenal job. And we did a number of things to be creative. I mean, because at the time when things were really getting going, there were so many supply chain disruptions for companies like Amazon and Fresh Direct and supermarkets that we were actually delivering to people's homes. That was a pivot that many people in my industry made. And while I knew that it was not something that was going to last for a long time, it was great because it gave us an opportunity to stay busy, gave us an opportunity to work together towards an objective, and we learned a lot doing it. But, you know, the bottom line was after about, I want to say, 10 to 12 weeks into it, and it was very, you know, nerve wracking and a lot of uh, anxiety, but a lot of praying and a lot of, a lot of wonderful things came out of it. I, I just made the decision that no matter what happens, we're going to come out of this a stronger company. And more importantly, I was so affected by the stories that I was reading about people in the food service industry that were suffering horribly. You know, you had people who had been working in this industry and in, in the back of the house and kitchens for years that were now living in parks because they had no money and they couldn't send money back to their families. And it was absolutely tragic, the devastation. And and quite frankly, Beverly, I think so much of the economic devastation that was wrought upon people that were working paycheck to paycheck was really, I want to say it was underappreciated and it, it really it really bothered me. And so we did, in addition to doing everything we could to support our customers and to support our people internally and to, to grow our company. I was able to partner up with a number of our various customers and restaurants to reach out to the community and to provide meals to frontline workers, to provide meals for people in need, to participate in community outreach. And I've said in other interviews that, you know, I always felt that I had a great relationship with our customers and that we as a company, it's more than just customers. It's really a, a, a relationship that we have and we've been through so much with our our customers, but that relationship got so much stronger. And I think the entire connectivity of the hospitality industry amongst restaurants and their vendors and restaurants and their employees and customers and their restaurants, uh, restaurants, excuse me, became so much more meaningful and interconnected. And, and that has continued to last. But it was a challenging time, but by the grace of God, through a lot of prayer and hard work and and thinking in an expansive way about how we could grow from it as a company, but how we could also have a positive impact on everyone around us, we were able to, you know, turn it into something very positive at the end. And, and I'm very grateful for that. Well, thinking collaboratively is usually the first step. You know, it's if you feel yeah. like you're 
it's just you and you have to make all the decisions and you have to come up with this, you have to solve the problems. Doesn't usually work. It always helps when you're working in a group toward a common goal or common goals. That's been my experience. That's one of the problems I have working on employment, your employment matters alone. It's like, okay, I have to do this. I have to do that. It's like a one arm paper hanger. I do everything, but I'm committed to doing it because I believe that people benefit from hearing from professionals like you. Professional, not because you're an attorney, you're a businessman. And there are a lot of people who want to be entrepreneurs and don't know how to go about it. They may not realize that opportunities present themselves and you have to be able to recognize them and take advantage of them like you did. You had an opportunity to do something other than what you had planned to do. And you said, oh, well, you know, I'm going to finish this, but I can I can do that. So, you know, you have both, even though you didn't practice law, it was beneficial to what you were doing. And it's not as though you can't use it. You can't use the the knowledge and the information that you acquired in law school to benefit what you're doing now. I completely agree with you, Beverly, in terms of what you were saying about collaboration. That, that's so important and something I would stress to people that want to be entrepreneurs that you want to build a strong team and being a leader of an organization is as much about being a good listener and understanding people as it is about giving directions. And I, I very much agree with what you're saying. I, although I don't practice law and I've never practiced it other than doing some pro bono work, the knowledge, both in terms of shaping the way that I think and problem solve, but just the familiarity with the law has been an enormous benefit to me as a businessman because there are so many areas in business where you're interacting with the law and just having that familiarity and, and that comfort level and that experience has benefited me enormously. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. So now you recognized an opportunity when it presented itself. There was something else that you said that struck me. The artistic element of the food industry. Tell me about that. I, I don't know that other than creative plating, you know, you, you make no, a meal and you want the plate to look, you, know, <laughs> you want to present it so that it's, it appeals to the eye. What do they say? You eat with your eyes first. I was like, creative, okay, artistic element of food industry. What is that? So- with me, Beverly, I have to tell you, I'm not a foodie. You know, I, I'm, I enjoy a good meal as anyone else does, but I'm not what you would call a foodie. I tend to eat the same things and I, I like to eat most of the time for nutritional value. But within the food industry, where I'm speaking about the artistic element is, for example, we started our own brand of food products uh, in 2018 called Holland and York. So we have our own line of hamburgers and chopped meat and honey and tomato products. We have about 50 products under the Holland and York family. And that came into being because I realized, I said, you know what? We have this wonderful relationship with our customers. And I look at companies like Netflix or Amazon or 
so many companies you think of, and they leverage their relationship with their customers, their distribution channel to create their own unique content, to strengthen that relationship with their customers, and to give them something of value. Now, in the business that I'm in, creating your own brand or your own label is not a novel idea, but I'd like to think our approach to it has been novel because many of our competitors, and I'm not saying this as a negative, it's a very smart and effective business idea, use it as an opportunity to enhance margins because they can negotiate with different packers and they can find at times what they may consider to be the least expensive packer for a given product that they put their label on. The approach that I took and continue to take is I wanted to partner up with the absolute best manufacturers that I could find and use them as the manufacturer for the Holland and label, Holland, excuse me, the Holland and York product, because I wanted to make it all about the quality, uh, the yeah. customer experience, and giving them something of value. And that's what I mean by being artistic. When you have a business, there's a great opportunity to be creative in so many ways, how you use your social media, creating a podcast, creating brands. And that's something that I really, really enjoy about business. And I think it's probably the case for any business. I think in the food service business, because it's so popular, restaurants and and socializing and, and nightlife and all of that, that it sort of lends itself perhaps to a little bit more creativity, but that's sort of where the artistic component has come alive for me. Now, you know, I, I understand, but it, it just was counterintuitive to me when I heard it. And I was like, let me write that down. I have to, I need some clarification. I'm not quite sure what that means. Not yeah, the first, the, the first way I thought of, you know, it's funny, I had been doing it, but I'd never thought of it like that until I did an interview on the profitable table with these two phenomenal restaurateurs. Uh, they have a business called Super Burrito in Rockaway Beach. They're opening another location in Williamsburg. And in addition to having phenomenal food, their social media is so creative and they create all this interesting content. And the guest that I had on, Eugene, phrased it in that manner, that having a business, you can sort of be as creative as you want. And I said, wow, I'd never verbalize it like that. But he's correct that you can be as creative in business as if you're sitting down to write a song or to paint a picture or do something. And he sort of verbalized it and it made me more aware of it. So I, I can I can relate to what you're saying. I, you know, now that you mention it, I've never thought my, of myself as creative. I'm not artistic. but I've written books. And someone said to me, but you are creative. You wrote that book. Exactly. That wasn't creative. That was just writing down my experience, what I've seen, what I've heard, what I know. <laughs> I said, that's not creative. But I guess based on what you say, it is a form of creativity. Absolutely. So As is this book, and this podcast. Yeah. So that people yes. will want to read it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So now what compelling information or advice do you have for people who might want, I guess, number one, to become an entrepreneur? And number two, there are a lot of people who want to get into the hospitality business, whether it's owning a food truck or being a personal chef going to culinary school. Many people may not be able to afford to go to culinary school, but 
You know, I know from watching us, I've said the Food Network and the cooking channel that there are people who aren't classically trained, but are nonetheless very good chefs, cooks, home cooks. I mean, it's it's nothing else is entertaining. No question. So with respect to the first question, you know, I think if if an individual wants to be an entrepreneur or go into business, I think, and and you hear this a lot, but I, I really believe it's true. And I'm speaking solely from my own experience. In order to be, I found in my career that in order to be successful, you have to work hard and you have to consistently work hard. And unless you enjoy what you're doing or you're super motivated by the results of what you're doing, most people are not going to put in the level of work and do it at the level of consistency that you need to. So I think if you want to become an entrepreneur and you have something that you're not just passionate about, but it's something that you find to be stimulating enough that you're happy to spend hours a day doing it and doing it for days and days and weeks and years and years in a row, that's really important because business at the end of the day is competitive and it's always changing and it's very complicated. It's extremely rewarding. It's extremely intellectually stimulating and gratifying. But I think if you're not willing to put in the work and to do it consistently, it's very difficult to be successful. And particularly in the hospitality industry because of the the nature of, of the industry. So that would be sort of the general thing. In terms of the more specified question regarding coming into this industry, I happen to think now is one of the best times ever to get into the hospitality space for a few reasons. The first is what we learned after 2020 is that people absolutely love to go out, to socialize, to experience things with one another. I mean, even during the entire year of 2020, it seemed like every news story was about the restaurant industry and when they'd open up and when they could do this, that, and the other, because it was something that people missed. And they missed it because congregating, sharing experiences, celebrating, it's elemental. So the industry itself, I think, is one that is not likely to be disrupted. And I think there are a number of phenomenal ways to get involved. You you made a great point, Beverly. While going to the culinary schools can be one avenue, another great avenue is to work for a chef or a pastry chef or someone in the industry that you really respect. You know, this is an industry that really lends itself to apprenticeship. And so if you're passionate and you want to get involved and you want to work as a mixologist or a chef or a pastry chef, there are people who will let you come in and apprentice under them. And that's probably as efficacious in many ways as going to a culinary school. And then my final point would be from the from the economic aspect of it, I think there are now so many different ways to leverage an idea in the hospitality space, whether it's a dine-in concept, whether it's a food truck, whether it's a concept that's more geared towards takeout, whether it's a personal chef. There are lots of different ways to get involved in this industry based upon what your objectives are. And so I think if someone's interested in it, they should really just jump in and give it a try. You know, obviously, as I said before, most of the people that are in the industry from the perspective of being chefs and, and whatnot love it. And that's why they do it. 
Uh, and you have to love it because it's demanding and it's challenging, but it's also incredibly rewarding. And um, for people that are interested, I, I did an interview with a wonderful woman named Caroline Schiff. She's got a huge following on Instagram. She's the executive uh, pastry chef at Gage and Tonner, and she started as an apprentice. And her thoughts on the subject were so illuminating and I think would be very inspiring to people. But but those would be sort of my initial comments on entrepreneurship in general and the food service industry in particular. Well, as an employer, what type of applicants, job people applying for a job in your company, what types are you looking for? So the way I like to operate at Wilco is I like to work with people that are independent thinkers and problem solvers and people that are self-driven. So in our industry, for example, in our sales department, we have a number of people that are former chefs or have worked as restaurant managers. And that works fabulously well because they know the industry and they know what the needs are for the back of the house. But that's in the sales department. You have everything from truck drivers, day crew, night crew, accounts payable, accounts receivable, customer service. And so the quality that I look for you know, other than sort of just the basic requirements that are necessary to fulfill a given task, is I like to work, as I just said, I like to work with people that are self-driven. And we have a culture here at Wilco where I try to create an environment where people can be as creative and take as much ownership of their job as they can. I find that the things that really motivate and keep employees happy Obviously, you have to have the appropriate compensation, but if it's the right person, they want to have a sense of personal satisfaction about their job. And the best way for that to occur is when they know that they have a certain amount, and in my view, as large amount as possible, of discretion and decision-making as possible. And so in our company, senior management, people have been here 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. They're steeped in the culture of the company. They're people that I know that I can rely on and that I trust their decision-making. I also look for people that are great communicators and who are open-minded. Like, for example, myself, I like to listen to people. I like to learn. I like to be open-minded. That works very well in this industry. What's more challenging are people that are closed-minded, people who are not willing to collaborate with others, people who are defensive, you know? That, 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 that creates a, that creates change. a challenge. Yeah, they resistance, resistance know, to change. Doing the same thing, doing things the same way over and over again because that's the way they've always done it. Exactly. That's exactly. Important. That's that's a challenge. That's a challenge. And if you have that dynamic in your company, you're making yourself very vulnerable because things are always changing. And if you're not open-minded and you're not flexible and you're not excited about opportunities that occur because of change, you can be left behind. And that's not a good thing. Those are the types of people that we like to onboard here at Wilco. And and those are the type of people that enjoy working here. People that like to be micromanaged and people who like to be told exactly what to do and only do what is within their highly specified department, they tend not to work well here because that's not the culture that we have. Do you have any... Community-based um, efforts to hire locally. Well, we do try to hire locally in Jersey City. 
not only because do we like to have people that are close to home and support the community, but the mayor has actually created a very clear tax incentive to hire people from Jersey City. There is now an employment tax in Jersey City that you have to pay for every employee unless they reside within Jersey City. So that's one. Yep, that's a real. And he's done a phenomenal job across the board. But we like to hire from the community and we like to participate. You know, when we were in Manhattan, we were very involved in in our community there on Gansevoort Street, whether it was with Florent or other community activists. We do the same thing here in Jersey City. One of the things that we were always involved because I I believe, you know, you you as you had said at the beginning, you know, I believe you have to be a force where you're trying to make a positive impact in the community and in the the people around you if you're really going to succeed in a comprehensive way. And as I said before, you know, I was really uh, very disturbed by what I saw during 2020. So we have a great partnership with the Imagine Society, which is in New York City, which really encourages and cultivates community uh, involvement amongst young people. And they're involved in various food banks on the Upper West Side. Uh, We're involved with food banks here in New Jersey. There are some phenomenal businesses in Jersey City that are always reaching out to the community that give us an opportunity to collaborate with them. But from an employment standpoint, we do like to hire from Jersey City, but ultimately we we always just hire who we think is the best fit fit. for the job. And if if they're not from Jersey City, that's not going to be a detraction for us. Now, there was a point at which saying, using the word fit to describe how employers wanted prospective employees or applicants to, that's how they described them, was a negative. But I think when people think expansively, you don't want to have people coming into the workplace that won't be happy. And if it's not a good fit, they won't be happy and the other employees won't be happy. Now, if it's not a good fit because there are people who don't want to work with people who don't look like them, that's a problem. But otherwise, 100%. you know, one of my dear loved ones said something that troubled me so much. He was working in the hospitality industry and, and he was annoyed because his supervisor spoke Spanish. And he said something that I didn't appreciate. And I was surprised. And I challenged him. And he said, well, she just wants to bring in her relatives. I said, did you ever stop to think that maybe you should ask her to teach you Spanish and you'll help her with English? Did you not see that as an opportunity to become bilingual? And he said, no, never occurred to him. You know, I think that's you know, part so of funny. our problem. We don't see the possibilities. We tend to be laser focused straight ahead and we're not thinking expansively. And it, it's very distressing. There are too many, not too many, there's so many different demographics in the workplace these days. There are so many opportunities to learn to learn from each other, to acquire linguistic skills that you didn't have before. 
cultural skills that you weren't aware of that you might you might like, you might enjoy, whether it's food or whether it's dancing. I mean, just the the interaction, the possibilities are endless. And we need to open our minds to your earlier point. I so agree with you, Beverly. And in fact, one of the decisions, and I believe we were the first to make it, and we may still be the only ones, but pretty much everyone in our customer service department is bilingual. I'm a huge believer that everything that we do is centered around the customer. So if we have customers that would prefer to place their orders in Spanish, I want to accommodate that. I also completely agree with you that the more diversity of thought and ideas that you have within an organization, the better that you're going to be. When I mention fit, I'm thinking in terms of a mindset. And the mindset that I'm thinking of is precisely what you're saying. The more open-minded you are, the more available you make yourself to new ways of looking at things, the better you're going to be. I really believe that. And I found that to be my be the case in, in my career. And I think it's so important to operate within that framework One, because I think it's ethically appropriate, but two, I believe it makes you a better business. And I think you're so right. I mean, people um, miss out on a lot of opportunities because they look at things in a very sort of linear and non-open-minded manner. And I just, I think that creates vulnerabilities that I want to uh, avoid for this organization. Well, I could talk to you for so much longer, but our time is up. (laughs) And I'm going to have to say goodbye, but I won't do that without first thanking you for taking the time. I've so enjoyed it. I've learned. And that's one of the reasons I enjoy podcasts, to serve, to provide content information for people who might not otherwise have access to it, and to learn myself. We're all works in progress. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed this, Beverly. I I learned as well, and I really enjoyed our conversation, and I really enjoyed your questions, and I, I so appreciate you inviting me on, and I thank you very much. Thank you. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Your Employment Matters with Beverly Williams. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review. I truly appreciate your support and that helps other listeners find the podcast. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, you can reach me at bawilliams at youremploymentmatters.com. My book, Get the Job Done, is available on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Please join me again next week. Until then, remember to embrace change and differences. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.